This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Is Israel obstructing aid deliveries to Gaza? The UN says some Palestinians are on the brink of starvation. That's even after the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to allow humanitarian assistance into the Strip. So who can force it to comply? I am Hashim Arbara, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests from New Haven, Connecticut. We're joined by Adim Says, a professor of international law at Queen's University and author of United Nations and the Question of Palestine. And in London is Chris Gunness, former spokesperson for UNRWA, who is speaking to us in an independent capacity. Welcome to the program. Adi, Israel has until February 20, the third to report to the ICJ. Norway has done to comply with the six orders it issued. Today, we're putting more emphasis on the humanitarian aspect. Do you believe that Israel is doing all it takes to ensure steady, consistent delivery of aid into the Strip? Well, thanks for having me, Hashem. Uh, in short, no. Uh, since the provisional measures order of the ICJ was issued on the 26th of January, there have been 17 massacres committed in the Gaza Strip, 2,000 killed, 2,000 Palestinians killed, of course, and obviously a se- severe intensification of the situation in the south. We now have 1.4 million Palestinians um, pushed towards the south uh, on the border with the Egyptian uh, Sinai. And the prospect of uh, permanent forcible transfer of this community into Egypt, uh, either through direct bombardment uh, and inertia that you know that is uh, compels that result, or over time through starvation used as a method of war, uh, and the uh, cutting off of humanitarian aid and assistance to this community looms large. Um, the situation on the ground is is tremendously difficult. Uh, on the order of a Nakba of the sort that we saw in 1948 and beyond. Chris, you would expect that under the orders issued by the ICJ, the focus would be pretty much on delivering aid, ensuring that the situation is contained. However, Israel appears to be now preparing for its ground offensive. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said and warned that the Israeli invasion would exponentially, I'm quoting him, increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare. What would be next for Gaza if that operation starts? 
Well, to be very clear, we are already seeing starvation on a mass scale. Martin Griffiths, the most senior humanitarian in the UN system, has said, and this was several weeks ago, that 400,000 people are literally starving. And to be clear, starvation is a slow-motion massacre. Ardi has mentioned the number of massacres that we've seen since this uh, provisional measures order, but the bigger massacre is the starvation. And to be clear, those member states who are presently defunding UNRWA are complicit in that slow-motion massacre. They were already complicit in a violation of the Genocide Convention, which makes it an obligation on state parties to prevent genocide. The clue is in the name, the, the Convention on the Prevention um, and Punishment of Genocide. But there are three other illegalities. First of all, as Ardi has quite rightly said, it's mm -hmm. a violation of the provisional measures. Um, thirdly, it is a violation of international humanitarian law, which is very clear that food cannot be used as a weapon of war. And there are many other, by the way, IHL violations that we are now seeing, including provisions for the protection of civilians in time of war. And very fourthly, it is a violation of humanitarian principles, neutrality and impartiality, which is why I say that the mm -hmm. um, illogical, illegal, immoral defunding of UNRWA needs to be ended immediately, and the civilians need to be got out of harm's way. Now, you know, this Israeli offer to give them safe passage to the north, we know what Israeli safe passage means. It means further killings on an industrial scale. What needs to happen is that the Negev, Israel as the occupying power, needs to protect the population, which is not just under mm -hmm. its protection, it's under its bombs. It's committing what the ICJ has called a plausible genocide against 2.3 million people. What needs to happen is that Israel needs to open up and give protection to these people immediately. Adi, activists have been saying that since the ICJ is there to referee disputes between nations, because of the relentless bombardment, the targeting of healthcare facilities, ambulances, the access roads, this could be a strong case for the ICC to prosecute Israeli soldiers, officials, for atrocities committed against the people of Gaza. Are you of that view? Should that be a case to be prosecuted? I am, but we know that uh, we know that the office of the prosecutor has a file opened. He's investigating the situation in Palestine. Sadly, he's been taking a horribly long time, inordinately so. But all of the events that we've seen unfold in in the occupied Gaza Strip and indeed in occupied Palestinian territory since seven October and before, are now increasingly before his team in in the Hague. Um, and so there's no reason to, not to believe that the matter is more not, uh, uh, more urgent uh, for the office of the prosecutor, which which he should be moving uh, as soon as possible. I think I'd like to also offer the mm -hmm. following. Um, there are about seven border crossings of the Gaza Strip, uh, generally one into Egypt and six others into Israel. And the point that was raised by Chris is an extremely important one. That is to say, if the Israelis are so concerned about the million, the million and a half people or more in the Gaza Strip who may be subjected to bombardment and want to remove them somehow and provide them with safe passage. Not only is the Negev the obvious place for them to go, but viewers need to understand 
that upwards of about 80% or thereabouts of the population of the Gaza Strip are themselves not from Gaza. They are Palestine refugees registered with UNRWA, and they originate, either original refugees or their descendants, they originate from those refugees who were ethnically cleansed in 1948 from areas in what is now Israel, including the Negev. And so it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for the Israelis to allow those people back to their homes. Indeed, it's a requirement under international law for the Israelis to allow those people to return to their homes, and in this case, under bombardment. The world is on its head, all a result of the complete disproportionate, unnecessary response to the October 7 attack against Israel. Chris, the, I guess the backdrop of the apocalyptic situation that you can see unfold in Gaza, activists have been saying basically that you need more than 500 trucks to be crossing into Gaza on a daily basis to cope with the massive demands of the people. Now. U.S. President Biden took the world by surprise when he said it was him who convinced Egyptian President Sisi to open the Rafah crossing. Then the Israelis are saying that at the same time they have their own unit, the Kogat, which liaises with the United Nations when it comes to the delivery of aid, and which basically says that the reason why we are, uh, we are being meticulous is that we'd like to ensure that food deliveries don't end up being in the hands of Hamas. Practically, we're talking about people who have to wait weeks and weeks and months because the mechanism itself is not working. Is it a politically motivated thing? If that question's addressed to me, Hashem, I would say an unequivocal yes. Of course, this is all politically motivated. And to be very clear, this is the political agenda of the far fascist right in Israel. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. You can just Google it. Look at the things that are being said about ethnically cleansing Gaza, about destroying um, life in Gaza, preventing um, any kind of return to Gaza. So make no mistake, what lies behind this is the notion that if you destroy UNRWA, if you destroy Gaza, then somehow you're getting rid of the Palestinian refugees and their right of return. Now, to be clear, on the getting rid of UNRWA, it is the UN General Assembly which hands down UNRWA's mandate as a, an organ of the, a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly, and only the General Assembly can change UNRWA's mandate. Um, but secondly, the Palestine refugees are people. They have inalienable rights, both group, individual, and collective rights. And those rights uh, are also include the right, political rights of self-determination. Of course, as refugees, they can make three choices, including the right of return, integration where they are, or safe passage to a third country. So, you know, getting rid of UNRWA, forcing these refugees to another part of the world, that does not get rid of the big <laughs> problem here for the Israeli fascistic right, which is that they are individuals, they are people with group and collective rights, and getting rid of UNRWA or pushing them out, displacing them to some other part, that doesn't change the fact that they are people with rights, the right to dignity, the right to justice, the right to accountability, the right to prosperity, and the right to self-determination. And that remains. They're human beings. Ardi, you see the pictures of the people suffering in Gaza, and then the question begs itself once again, who is to be held accountable for the... Uh, the slow delivery of aid into, into the Strip. Is it the Israeli army? Is it the, the neighbours? Is it the international community? Or is it just simply bureaucratic hurdles? 
Yeah, I mean, in the first instance, uh, Hashem, it would be the Israeli uh, as occupying power in the Gaza Strip. Uh, they have an obligation to, this sounds rather odd in the circumstances, but their obligations under international are to protect the civilian Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip, not bombard them indiscriminately and use starvation against them as a tool of war. So in the first instance, under international law, it's the Israelis who have the obligation to protect that population, including through the provision of humanitarian aid sufficient to scale and so on, as per not only the ICJ Provisional Measures Order of 26 January, but general public international law, law uh, belligerent occupation, the Fourth Geneva Convention, and so on. But in addition to that, you have third states who have an obligation to, quote, ensure that Israel mm -hmm. respect the terms of humanitarian law, common Article 1 of the four Geneva Conventions, as well as under the Provisional Measures Order of 26 uh, January. They have an obligation, as Chris said earlier, to prevent the commission of genocide. And that means providing means uh, and ways to ensure greater humanitarian support to the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, not less. And therefore, the defunding of UNRWA runs counter to their obligations under the Genocide Convention. I just wanted to uh, offer the following based on uh -huh. what Chris had just said, though. We have evidence three days after the, the provisional measures order uh, was issued by the court. We have clear evidence in the public realm of a, a conference taking place uh, by the Israeli far right in Jerusalem called the quote unquote return to Gaza conference, at which um, at least I think 11 ministers of government appeared and 15 members of, of government uh, um, of cabinet, forgive me, they were there. And in this conference, there are open calls by multiple members of the, of the Israeli uh, uh, body politic, as well as governing structures, saying that basically we want to return, that is return Israeli settlers to the Gaza Strip after we ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip. Lost in these four-month period of coverage over the Gaza Strip is the simple truth that Israel is using the events of 7 October as a pretext to ethnically cleanse 2.2 million Palestinians, or as many of them as possible, mm -hmm. out of the Gaza Strip. This is a strategic goal of Israel. They've been open and public about their interests in doing so, and their actions on the ground, their military actions, and so on, now the subject of a provisional measures order under the Genocide Convention of the ICJ, or demonstrate all of that. So the, the story really is about how to stave off to stop the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip, and mm -hmm. even worse, the possible genocide of, of the people there. Chris, the, when you look at the orders issued by the ICJ, it was, it was, I mean, obvious that two key components were factoring when it comes to the decision-making process. Basically, the, they wanted to make sure that there was no genocidal intent and that aid goes to uh, Gaza. What's next for Gazans? Uh, and this is why I'm not asking you about UNRWA. How do you see the future for Gaza now that the humanitarian aid lifeline, UNRWA, hangs by a thread? Well, first of all, on this question of the ICC, the ICJ, I see accountability as a very broad canvas. So yes, there's the ICJ, which adjudicates disputes between states. There's the ICC, which can bring cases against individuals. But there's also the work being done in national jurisdictions. Just today, we had, mm -hmm. or was it yesterday, 
had a ruling in Holland over um, arms supplies. Um, it's clear that there's economic pressures. Turkey recently downgraded the economic relationship um, with Israel. So there are many other things going on um, across the board. I think as far as the people in Gaza um, are concerned, I think the future is bleak. And I think that while you have a situation where the international community, countries like my own, Britain, the United States, Canada, are prepared, A, on the one hand, to continue supplying weapons, as well as diplomatic and political support through the United Nations. We've seen this in the Security Council also. But at the same time, defund the very organization established by um, the United Nations to bring humanitarian relief and assistance to these people, then I think there is um, a real problem. But to be clear, mm -hmm. the Palestinians been here before. These are people with extraordinary resilience. I hate to use that word resilience in the face of a plausible genocide. But the fact is that you cannot rob a people of their dignity. You cannot rob a people of their identity and their destiny, frankly. And okay. you cannot do that simply by subjecting them to what's going on. They will outlive this terrible, terrible, as it might seem at the moment. Uh, since both of you mentioned the moral legal obligations of the third parties, I'll go to Adi first. Adi, South African lawyers are hoping to return back uh, at the end of this month to the ICJ and say that basically, given the track record of the ICJ refereeing disputes between nations, there is the potential for them to say, wait a second, if the Americans, the Brits, uh, the, 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 the Europeans are not able to use their leverage uh, with the Israelis in terms of telling them it's about time to stop the war, it's about time to deliver aid, that could be a case for them to prosecute those nations for their inaction and not willing to move forward. Could that be a practical case to follow? Yes, uh, in short, yes. Uh, as I said earlier, all signatories to the, uh, uh, all parties to the Genocide Convention have an obligation to prevent. And the moment that they were put on notice by the court on the 26th of January of the plausibility of genocide taking place is the moment that based on the court's jurisprudence, they, their, their obligation to prevent is triggered. Now, to the extent that those third states uh, Canada and, and others, uh, the UK, France and others, Canada, the United States, do not take effective measures to prevent. They expose themselves to, to, to uh, possible cases brought by other states, including South Africa, but not exclusively to South mm -hmm. Africa. Other parties to the convention can bring claims against them before the court, basically saying that you failed in your duty to prevent. The Nicaraguans, for instance, have, have now attempted to join, or rather to intervene in the South African matter uh, with Israel. That's just an example. So um, it is possible that you can have further litigation before the court. It, uh, you know, it would depend on this third state in question. Some of these states have sort of objected to the uh, uh, jurisdiction of the court uh, with declarations submitted before the court that predate the, the, the South African matter. But there are some states who are exposed. Um, that, is, that is a possibility. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Unfortunately, we're running out of uh, time. I really appreciate your time, Ardi Imseis and Chris Gunnis. Thank you very much indeed. This episode was produced by Mohammed Al Aishi, Sarah Gill, Veronica Pedrosa, 
and Jima Harris. Studio Sound was by Yasser Rahmani. The program was edited by Sarun Murali, Zainab Badr, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tuning on Tuesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take. Why are Indian workers lining up to go to Israel while the war on Gaza continues to rage? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.